The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. Eamon Ella with me in studio. Eamon Ryan, Minister for the Environment, Climate, Communications and Transport and leader of the Green Party as well. Minister, you're welcome to the uh, studio. Uh, so uh, we heard from uh, your namesake, Eamon Torsney, telling us about these um, energy announced uh, cuts in home energy prices. Uh, the company Smart Meter plans will see unit rates cut by 20% and then dual fuel electricity and gas rates will also fall by 20%. Do you expect other suppliers to follow suit? Yes, and I think it's good news. It's good news for consumers. Uh, it's about time, because, but it, it's taken this time for, for a reason. Um, and Energy are one of the top four. There are four kind of very large, like VSB, Bordgash, uh, SSE. And uh, I would imagine in the coming weeks, they will also announce reductions, probably different levels because each company has different circumstances. But I think it is a competitive market. There are a lot of supply companies. Uh, and I think that competition will help drive, drive, drive down prices. They won't come down to the levels we might have seen two or three or four years ago, but they'll be nowhere near the incredibly high prices mm. of the last year and a half. And that's will, good news. Will they ever go back down to those levels? Or do you think we're in a new era of well, the energy reason, supply? The reason our prices are particularly high is because we're reliant on so much gas for our electricity. And that's why Irish prices are higher by European standards. They will come down as we switch away from the use of gas. They will as we switch to offshore wind. I mean, for example, the moment, the the uh, retail prices around various companies, different prices, but let's say around 40 cent a kilowatt hour. We know that we, we've contracted an auction system for offshore wind on the East Coast, which is uh, scale, like, you know, it's, it's a really large amount of power coming in. And we know with the, the wholesale price, okay, it's a wholesale price, so that is uh, less, eight and a half, eight point something uh, a cent a kilowatt hour. So mm. as that comes on stream and as we switch away from the use of gas, our prices will come down, will stabilise. The first generation of turbines, to, to what extent are, are they coming to the end of their life cycle and will they need to be replaced as well? They are uh, and they can and will. It'll be subject to planning constraints. Um, the benefit we will have is we will likely replace uh, what were now kind of by now in historic standards are actually very uh, inefficient or are, are not very large or are not very uh, productive. The new turbines are much have much higher capacity factors. Uh, we'll probably have a smaller number of turbines. They will be larger. Uh, we will need onshore wind. It is part of the mix and having a variety of different sources allows you balance it. Mm. Uh, we will also see a huge or we are seeing a huge relative rollout of solar both on people's roofs and in the field. And when you combine those three, offshore wind, onshore wind and solar, and then you also see what's happening, what's developing now is battery storage, both at a, a kind of a utility scale and in people's houses. That's the energy, electricity system. That's the energy system of the future. The, the energy system is going to electrify. Uh, and the countries that are good at this are those who are good at balancing mm. variable renewable supply. It is going to be renewable. The world is going renewable. 90% of the new power generation in the world this year is renewable. Solar power investment this year has overtaken the investment in oil. 
like it, there's a dramatic change happening. It's 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 happening quicker than people expected. It is a solar and a wind revolution, and we as a country can and will be good. And onshore uh, wind, and I'm looking up my TV screen. There's kind of big news in the UK on that front. Uh, Shell selling an awful lot of resources to Octopus Energy um, across the water. Uh, those onshore turbines that will be replaced, fewer of them, but with bigger turbines. Mm. Um, I mean, that's going to have to involve an awful lot of community engagement again, isn't it? Yes, and, and that's why I said at the very start, you have to, you know, it's subject to planning. Um, there are real. Would benefit- it not be quicker and more efficient to just stick up the same size turbines again? No, because the 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 economics and the and the technology have improved to to such an extent that 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 wouldn't be competitive. It wouldn't be no, but I know, but and it wouldn't perfection us. sometimes can be the enemy of the good, can't it? You know, you, we've seen how communities respond, have responded in some circumstances to to these larger turbines going in. They I often mobilise against well, it. Well, I think they would also prefer a, small, a, few, a fewer number, but also come back to what we just said at the start, like how can we provide ourselves with a, uh, an affordable form of energy and uh, that approach will bring down the prices. And, that, and yes, you have to balance all these considerations, but I think it will be that... Com- and I think particularly we'll start looking at ways of, for example where you put solar panels and wind turbines together because then what you're doing is often when the wind isn't blowing, the sun is shining or vice versa. And that means you use the grid connection efficiently and, and therefore you have less pylons, you have less wires. So I think we can design this in a way that protects our countryside, that it's not an intrusion on certain communities excessively, but which gives us a power supply, not just for our electricity, for the lights, for the you know uh, TV, for the uh, but also for heating our homes and running our transport system. And that's where we're going. This is an absolute certainty now. It's going to we are going to electrify everything. It's going to be renewable and balancing capability. And we in Ireland happen to live in one of the windiest places on the planet. So and also we're good at this. The likes of ESB and Airgrid and the other energy companies, mm. likes of Energia, SSC, the ones I mentioned. They are skilled in this and we can and will be good. And the interconnectors, um, the north-south interconnector, the interconnector with Wales that comes in at the Hook Peninsula and the one with France that comes in, I think, closer to Cork. Um, are they of sufficient scale that they are future-proofed or will there need to be more infrastructural investment there as well so that we become part of this kind of European-wide energy grid people talk about? We will be part of that's what's called a super grid and and absolutely because our power, as I said, is one of the largest renewable energy sources Europe has. It makes sense for us to develop it and share it with our neighbours and also then get security that at times when the wind isn't blowing, we can import power for them. Just to describe to people where we are at the moment, we have two interconnectors, one from Northern Ireland across to Scotland and we've one just north of Dublin across to Wales. We are currently building another one from Wales to Wexford and we're also building another one from Norman, from Brittany, from Brest to Cork. I'm going to London uh, week after next and we will be, I'll be talking with the UK Climate and Energy Minister about building more of those wires because what that does is that that's part of this, as I said, there's new industrial revolution taking place. It's all about balancing variable power and variable supply and demand. Mm. And by having those, these wires are quite small. They're about the width or the diameter of a yeah. tennis ball. They they come ashore underground. You don't see them. They, um, they're they very reliable. They You don't have huge losses, even though you're moving power over long distances. The way I see it going, we will then build another further interconnection with France and even connection beyond that to go to Spain. 
And in going to Spain to connect that kind of Mediterranean solar with Irish wind. And that gives you the long term stable, uh, low carbon, fit for climate, fit for energy security world. And that's what what we're going to build. OK, so a, a second one to France and another to Spain down yeah. the tracks. OK, um, that'll, that'll take a decade or two. Um, uh, but but in, you start now. Uh, somebody's texting. Why don't we make data centre owners pay for the strain they put on our infrastructure? Uh, let me put that question to you with a secondary question. Um, should more and more data centres and more industrial units be covered in solar panels? Yes, I think that I think we're going to see uh, loads of industrial uh, application of solar. We have just gone out for public consultation on a, a policy measure which is called promoting private wires. So I'll just to explain that. The previously for God, from the, so for the last 80, 90 years in the state, it, it is the ESB and, and Airgrid who are allowed to put up and manage and run the, the electricity wires. And for very good reason, they're, they're very good at it. But we're looking to change the policy to give companies the opportunity to run a wire into their own business from a renewable power plant or, or connecting to battery storage and other systems so that they are able to generate their own power and mm. use it and also sh- ship it the other way as part of this balancing system, this really kind of a, a complex web o- of electricity distribution. It, it's in consultation. We've been for years talking about it. Now I believe it's time to deliver it. Um, subject to that being approved by the end of this year, and government have already approved the consultation process, uh, I expect us to change the rules there. And I think that will untap what's already happening, a really dramatic switch towards solar in Ireland. Even in Ireland, where you know we're not the sunniest country as we know, there's actually a dramatic increase happening in solar, both in people's homes and in businesses and in, in the field, in farms. Now, some councils have recently, go back to you said the kind of the planning issue, um, what's holding us back? Planning is probably one of the biggest obstacles, both in wind farms, which were waiting for approval in the planning system, but also solar in the field, where some councils seem to be saying, well, we don't want it because I, mainly visual intrusion or you, know, mm. kind of you don't want to see a field with, with solar panels. It. In my mind, uh, I mean, you listen and obviously we have to make sure we get the planning consents right. But I think those counties and those councils that don't switch to this future will have the downside that that they don't have the clean power locally to attract businesses in. Investment and jobs and the economic future will come to those areas which are good at this clean energy revolution. And we in Ireland can and will be good at it. And the counties that are most progressive will be the ones that do best, not just in the renewable energy, but in attracting other industries because they want to be nearby to where the power is. So uh, as well as planning, might a potential delay to that revolution um, be that we are in a queue with a lot of other countries looking for the resources, the raw materials to, to, to do all of this. Mm. I mean, we're not, we're, we're not the only country that's engaged in a solar no, revolution. No, there is. Um, I, I'm, um, I'm very involved in that uh, at an international level. I'm, I have the great honour of being the co-chair of the International Energy Agency as it celebrates its 50th year. We, we have a big ministerial meeting in February. And my argument, and I'll, I'll make it, I'm, I'm travelling to Africa tomorrow to uh, a major African climate conference and I'll be in New York the week after to, to, to speak to the UN General Assembly on it. My argument is to make this revolution work, it has to work everywhere. Um, it, it isn't working for the developing world. We have a very unfair world. The developing world have to pay much higher interest rates and have much less secure access to technology. As an example of that, and this is not in any way criticism of Holland or my Dutch colleagues, there are more solar panels in Holland than there are the entirety of Africa. 
even though Africa receives 40% of the solar radiation onto land in the mm. world. It's, it's, now, if we can, on an international basis, this is my argument where I'm going to the conference tomorrow and uh, what I'll be saying in New York, if we can make sure that Africa can have access to that solar power, that benefits everyone because firstly, well, firstly, those wires I mentioned connecting to Spain, they can, can continue on into Africa and so you can balance African solar with European wind and other power. But secondly, when you have a fair system for and a fair financing world for the delivery of that revolution, it means that we, we are much easier in, in how we cooperate with China and with America, that you won't have a, a race to the bottom, you won't have a trade war. Um, and also, and sorry, this is quite big now and broad, but this is the, the way we have to think. It also stabilizes a lot of the concerns about migration and about security. We will not ever, we will never fight mm. over solar energy. You will never have a resource war around renewable powers because renewable power exists everywhere. So rather than us going down the route of having a fortress Europe, huge armies on the border, gates or, uh, and uh, uh, all the military uh, that you have to provide to protect fossil fuels, mm. we develop renewables. It, my neighbour's security, when they have it, is enhanced by their security. And I think... Ireland is well placed globally to, to, to make that argument because we're good at development aid. We're yeah. good in how we work with the developing world. And so one of my jobs in the next few months leading up to the climate negotiations is to is to advance that sort of approach. Uh, quite a few people asking if you're cycling to Africa and New York. No, I'm not. You can't cycle. <laughs> um, uh, uh, well, you, you could cycle to Africa, might yeah. a long way around. Um, it, so, listen, good news, we said right at the outset, for, for Energia customers, and would would hope the, the, the customers of the other big three um, will, will, will feel the benefit as well soon. But you're right to acknowledge, you know, we're not going back to the energy prices of three or four years ago. And in that context, you've got kind of rents at record high, food prices have increased, people are paying more on their mortgage on the back of uh, ECB interest rate hikes. So in the context of all of that taken together, how do you defend increasing the cost of living today by hiking VAT and excise duty? Um, well, the VAT, I, I think it's appropriate because I don't think the hospitality sector, that was measure was introduced in a very much an emergency measure to protect the hospitality sector. Uh, I think at the moment it is at full tilt and, and in the hotel sector, obviously different parts of the country, different realities. But we all know the prices we're seeing in the in the hotel sector and elsewhere. And I think it's appropriate at a time like this to reintroduce it. Otherwise, it would be very difficult to. And similarly with the excise duties, that was introduced at a time when the price per litre for diesel and petrol was over €2 Euros a, ga- a litre. Um, the, we agreed and committed to reintroduce it, um, doing it in a phased, stable base, not all in one, in one go. Um, no one would ever want to do it in politics, never popular. But one of the benefits and advantage of that is that it does raise revenue that allows us to use for other measures we need to make in government. There was some nine. How much extra revenue do you need? You're staring down the barrel of about a 64 billion euro surplus. And I think the correct thing to do, the economically correct thing to do, is put some of that money aside into a fund for the time when we don't have that revenue. And also particularly because our country is at full employment and the good economics is that you you don't overheat an economy. So 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 that makes absolute economic sense. But similarly, then we still do need to pay for. Inc- 
social welfare measures and other measures to protect householders in a variety of different ways, to invest in education, health and so on. One of the benefits of having a stable and diverse tax system is you can do that in a way that's economically prudent and stable and avoids the boom bust of the past. We've learned long, long enough the tooth to have seen the likes of the crisis we had in the 80s, the crisis we had in the, in the financial crisis, that boom and bust does not serve our purposes. Having a stable, diverse tax okay. base is actually part of having a stable economy that protects So our it's people. in our good. For people who are looking at the petrol prices and they've gone up uh, overnight and they're going to go up uh, next month as well, uh, it's, it's for our own good you're not doing for our this. Own good. It's, and the government needs your money. Well, it's the people's money. Uh, and you need government... Let the people keep it. Well, no, because sometimes you need public services. Sometimes, actually, I can't, I can't provide a health system or, you know, for, for myself, for my family. I can't uh, protect myself from all without having a guard the Shikana. I don't want a private health or security system or health system. I, I want public services. The Irish people, I think, increasingly are realising our biggest challenge at the moment, particularly in a country that is rapidly growing, both population and economy. And I think the argument that the business group IBEC make is, is absolutely correct, that we've had this incredible growth in the economy. There was something like an extra billion, sorry, million workers have come into the economy and the public service has stayed the same size. And actually to have a well-functioning country, to have a safe country, to have a healthy country, to have a, a culturally rich country, you do need to invest in public services. And that does mean you do need to have some tax system, tax supplies. Uh, transport is one of the caps, uh, the ministerial caps you wear. Um, we had uh, your party colleague, Dumb City Councillor Michael Pidgeon, in a few minutes ago, suggesting all cars should ultimately be fitted with speed limiters in this country for road safety purposes. Do you agree? Can I agree, first of all, I don't think we should even start talking about it without acknowledging that there's been a real harrowing time for particularly the families and yeah. the people of Clonmel and Cashel and, and elsewhere. Uh, and really, we do have to respond to that increase in road fatalities and serious injuries. Uh, I think Liz O'Donnell's correct, the chair of the Road Safety Authority, when she says the political system's going to have to be willing to be brave and take some, some strong decisions to do that. I do think reducing speed is the best way of uh, saving lives and, and, and the serious injuries that are occurring. I think there are a variety of ways doing that. I think we need to look at, and we will as government, look at the default speed limits so that they are, I think, more Appropriate. Um, I, I think we also need to look at the design of our streets. Uh, so, when you talk about default, you mean the kind of the 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 this is a kind of a, a regional road, so sixty kilometres an hour is the default speed limit applied to it, exactly. or eighty, exactly. or whatever it happens to be, and, and allow councils to have some flexibility and freedom. But to say that, that this is particularly windy, this should be forty. Or the, yes, but, but, but bring down the overall default limits, for example, in urban areas from something like 50 kilometres down to 30, so that that's the standard. And if the case has to be made, maybe it's a wide uh, arterial road with very little pedestrians and so on. OK, in those instances, you could bring it up to 50. But we set the default at a lower level in both rural roads and, uh, and So the exception roads. works the other way. The, exactly. the lower level is the default the, and you apply for Michael the exception. I Michael saying, oh, you know, these aren't, you don't have to go to the upper limit. But unfortunately, the way we design it at the moment, it does allow for that. And I think in a lot of cases right around the country, people know this. I was I was down in West Clare last weekend. I was driving from, people might know the road from Gert to Curra Finn. And it, the speed limit was way beyond 
what would, was safe on that road. And there are thousands of kilometres of road like that in the country. So the more we can help reduce speed to reduce fatalities, I think it's one of the response. Now, to answer your question, the, the limiter of speed, which is a, a further option or another way of doing it, there is an interim measure that could be done there. Michael, actually, I was talking to him just as he came out, mentioned it. In his car, he has a facility where you can, at the click of a switch, you can automatically switch to a car that makes sure you stay within the speed limit. And I think some of those measures we can, a lot of maybe people mm. would like to use as a way of making sure they don't go over the speed limit, they don't get penalty points, they reduce their risk of an accident, they reduce the risk of the consequence of that accident. So I think, yes, we should be looking at those sort of measures. Uh, something we talked about earlier, I just want to ask you before I let you go, um, do you still think we should reintroduce wolves to our national parks? Yeah, was, listen, if I, one of the things I regret about that, yes, in terms of ecological analysis, anyone uh, would well, tell you... said yes now, that, so it doesn't that, matter well, what you say after makes, this. Yeah. Did you not learn that lesson the last <laughs> time? The lesson I learned from that is we've got to bring people with us. And I lost all people on that. I didn't want to do it. I prefer to hold off and, and actually uh, work with people in, uh, right across the country to restore biodiversity, to restore nature in all its wonder in, in every part of our country. Yeah. And I think actually it's starting to happen. I think the return of those ospreys, not the helicopter ones, but the, the feathered version yeah. up in Fermanagh, the, the, the good news in terms of the return of the corncrake this year shows that if you give nature the space and if we clean up our water and actually change our forestry model towards a more biodiverse system, we will see nature bound back. Now, in forestry, there is a real problem because the excessive number of deers, particularly deer, are actually stopping that. And we do have an issue there that we have to address. Yeah, we just need to shoot more of them, though, don't we? There is a cull. And it's quite a significant call. And that is has does have to be done one way or another because we do need to see a better balance system coming Yeah, back. we already have an alpha predator and we're it. Uh, yeah. Minister for the Environment, Climate, Communications and Transport and Leader of the Green Party, Eamon Ryan Minister. Thanks very much uh, for joining us. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy. With Nissan. On News Talk.